the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we have the pleasure of Maggie Mankin joining us uh, Maggie is senior director of education at Hackbright uh, in San Francisco California USA uh, Maggie for our audience that aren't familiar with Hackbright uh, do you mind explaining what you guys do not at all um, so we're a coding boot camp um, some have heard of that concept it's basically a short-term 12-week program where um, women, uh, where all women's school can come and learn uh, the fundamentals of software engineering. Um, so anything and everything that you need to get your first job as a software engineer is what we aim to teach. Um, and we kind of start off at like where you can, where you stop teaching yourself to code and where you, you know, stop being able to do that. And we pick up there and try to get people to that point where they can actually go and, and do the interviews and, and get the jobs. Um, so we teach we teach primarily Python, but among many other things. Awesome, awesome. Well, we are Python fans at the Excel Engineer, so <laughs> it's great to hear. Uh, for our audience that might be curious about kind of the backgrounds of students that you guys take on, uh, it's not primarily, I guess, students who may have done a computer science undergraduate degree. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, most people have had careers in lots of other fields. So we've had like nurses, we've had artists, we've had um, we have like a resident physician right now in our program. We have, you know, it really runs the gamut as far as who who's interested in coding, but also who is able to actually make that career change. Um, so yeah, it's like a, a variety of backgrounds, uh, academics, um, pre people who are, who are already in tech, but in non-engineering roles, that's really common. Um, you know, tech support, pro program managers, product managers. Um, we've seen, yeah, I mean, health, health care professionals, um, coaches. Do you, mind, do you mind, I realize this can be anonymized, but do you mind uh, uh, maybe giving a, a few specific career trajectory arcs that pass through Hackbright? No, not at all. Um, let's see. Let me think of one that is especially helpful. Sure, maybe an accidental engineer. An accidental engineer. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of folks come in, uh, you know, into coding accidentally. Um, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of a nurse specifically um, who was, you know, basically a nurse for I think like five years or so. Um, she started coding because her friend, you know, wanted to uh, wanted her to try it out. She thought she'd like it. Her friend is an engineer. Um, she highly recommended, you know, programming uh, because she just had a hunch um, that her, you know, that her nurse friend might like it. Um, and that's actually something that we see again and again is how one of our best, one of the best ways that we get um, students is, is through referrals of other alumni or other women engineers who just know women who are, for whatever reason, inclined to that that coding career, just inclined to want to be, you know, making things every day, be creative, change their lives, become, you know, get a really well-paying job. Um, that's another thing. You know, economic mobility is something that's awesome to be able to like offer in in engineering, especially if people are passionate about being creative and getting paid for it. Um, so yeah, I think it's just yeah, some, thinking about like that nurse or that person who has you know, a career that they're happy with, but maybe their true passion is in seeing something that, that, that is in their brain come to life um, or to debug all day long. <laughs> it's another thing that, you know, students are really passionate about. 
Um, and then, you know, she, she now works as a software engineer. Uh, I won't say the company name, but, you know, it's a, it's a classic, like, first engineering role. Um, she's been in it for about a year and a half, and, and it's, it's awesome. So, You mentioned Python. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our audience that are curious about curriculum, when it comes to the, the time that people spend in the program at Hackbright, uh, what types of things are, are you guys focused on and prioritizing for uh, the time that students spend at Hackbright? Yeah, so um, should I just take you week by week? Would that be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so for the first two weeks, we kind of start with um, Git and version control. Uh, we talk about the command line. We introduce that to folks who haven't seen it before. Um, we do a little bit of review of things like functions, lists, basic data structures in Python. Um, some people come in having learned like Ruby or JavaScript, like how to write for loops in those languages, how to write functions. So we just get everyone on the same page with here's Python. If you haven't seen it, um, it's usually a pretty straightforward shift over um, the Java folks and the C folks have a little tougher time. Um, but, you know, we get everyone on the same page with Python in the first week. Um, we, we finish that week off with a discussion of computer memory and how that applies to languages like Python versus C. Um, the second week is all sort of intermediate or like less common data structures along with a little more development tooling, more on Git and GitHub. Um, so we talk about, you know, mutable and immutable data structures in Python. We finish off by teaching them the core aspects of object orientation in two days, which I think is like one of our greatest feats <laughs> um, nice. where we just go over, you know, like half a semester's worth of probably computer science info, just throw it at them and they all just eat it for dinner, which is awesome. Um, week three is web development, which is all Python um, on the back end, um, and we cover uh, testing that week as well. Week four, we do SQL for two and a half days, and then JavaScript for two and a half days. <laughs> so we go from back end to front end very quickly. Um, week five is more on data modeling. So they've learned SQL, but they are ready to learn you know, how to design databases. Um, week six and seven are like rapid fire different topic every day that they may or may not want to specialize in at some point later on either in the program or in their careers so like machine learning data viz cryptography uh react js the list goes on and then every everything until week 10 from that point on is just compute core computer science um and then weeks 11 and 12 are all kind of focused on career prep job search ready you know readiness um getting ready to do technical interviews You've been at Hackbright for five to six years now. Uh, you've interviewed literally hundreds of candidates. Uh, I'd imagine over that time, you guys have probably changed uh, maybe your methodology about interviewing applicants to come on as students. Uh, maybe not how it's changed, but for audience curious about the process and what you look for as an interviewer, mm-hmm. what do you guys look for? Yeah, and it's it's changed over time. Like I think this is one of the things that Boot camps, um, coding boot camps are a new concept. I think they, the first one um, maybe came out 2011 at the earliest, maybe 2010. I'm not quite sure on the exact date. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of what we've gotten better at over the years is tr- finding students who are going to be successful in our program. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly very proud of how far we've come there. Uh, because, you know, at first it was sort of like anyone can learn to code, just like walk in the door. And if you you know, have the time and the motivation, like you can do it. And that, that is true to some extent, but I think there are core concepts that, 
if everyone can be on the same page and have learned them on their own before coming, that um, you know, you're much more likely to be successful and to not, uh, I guess to, yeah, not waste your time learning and packing your brain with all of the other things that we're gonna be teaching. Because um, I think, you know, if you don't know about certain concepts, um, when you try to learn web development, for example, like if you're not yeah. clear on control flow and conditional logic or Boolean logic or, you know, the just functions and like, you know, input output and like all these things, like if you're super clear on them, it's just going to be that much easier to just sort of free your brain up for, for those new things. Um, so we've started to do, you know, short technical admissions interviews that are aimed at um, just five syntax areas, um, as well as some of the more non-technical aspects. So things like debugging and debugging techniques, um, the ability to like read error messages, um, the ability to be coached, um, which is a you know le less central thing, but still relevant when we consider an applicant's readiness. Like if they can, if they can hear feedback during the interview and be taught something really quickly and uh, you know really quickly apply it to solve the problem. That's huge, right? Um, but yeah, the syntax areas are just your standard run-of-the-mill kind of first things that you learn when you're learning a programming language. Basic data types, if statements, looping, functions, and what am I forgetting? There's five. Uh, I, I, I forget too. <laughs> well, one of the items you just mentioned I think is super interesting and is totally a great thing that you guys ask in your interviews is regards to tracebacks and when your software breaks yes which, <laughs> uh, it, which it has a tendency to do <laughs> yeah folks if your software doesn't break i think you're a liar <laughs> yeah. but that's a super in important skill to have mm -hmm. is interpreting the spewed out text that is often very hard to scrutinize and interpret especially as a newcomer is there a curriculum that you guys require um, applicants to review uh, before interviewing or, or additional curriculum that people review before coming on their first day, it sounds like? Yeah, so we, have, um, we do have some classes that we offer to help people get ready for, for, you know, to come to our full-time program. So that's a, a prep class, which mm -hmm. is like a, a one-month class. Um, we also have an online Python 101 class that... Um, kind of offers like that core those core syntax concepts and that's mm -hmm. you know not in person obviously um i would say you know as far as what they do after having been admitted and then beforehand um we don't do much in terms of debugging beforehand but i think something that is intrinsic when you learn the syntax is that you become familiar with the errors that result from those core syntax pieces mm -hmm. um and I, I always like wish that I could chart someone's heart rate when they see an error message from like when they first are starting to learn programming to like, you know, the end of Hackbright's program, for example. And I imagine like, you know, that sense of panic and like, oh, I did something wrong and it's never going to be fixed, like goes down so much, just the more error messages that you see. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that we look at in the interview, for example, is like, are they actually, are they just glancing at the error message and being like, oh, it's not working? Or are they actually reading it, parsing it, trying to interpret it? Um, you know, can we help them interpret it and they can use it? Um, so I think those are all, you know, things that help both before and during and, and after <laughs> um, that, you know. Makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, the goal of students coming in is to land a job coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that sounds like the curriculum is pretty tailored both towards on-the-job skills and to prepare people to get the jobs, be optimized to get the jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the type of uh, relationship between what you just described when it comes to what uh, you ask applicants for in the admissions process and what they might experience when they go out and interview for jobs after maybe graduating? Awesome. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I always say at the beginning of the technical admissions interviews, like we're, we're asking a lot at this stage. Like you just learned how to you know, write a for loop and now I'm doing a technical interview with you. But it is very early practice for those interviews that they're going to do when they graduate. Um, one of the things that's very just me- purely mechanical is that we use uh, a site called CoderPad for our technical interviews. And that's a really popular tool that, that hiring managers or, or other interviewers use um, when they're doing their technical interviews. Um, we do encourage them to you know, ask questions, to, to, describe, to pseudocode beforehand, to, to uh, make it a conversation. Um, and I, I really, I'm a big believer that you should make that as the interviewer, it's my job to make sure that they feel comfortable um, as they're going through and that they can make mistakes and come back from them and they can draw a blank on syntax and, you know, still do well if they're just super nervous. And I, I would like to think that they encounter that after after in their actual <laughs> interviews. Um, but yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. A previous guest we've had on the show runs interviewing IO mm-hmm. uh, practice interviewing site where they as well use CoderPad. I as I'm aware of another new entrant in the space called Repl It. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you guys have tried that before. Uh, but no, for our audience that are curious about what using these tools might be like, I recommend going and checking out, I think it's coderpad.io. Mm-hmm. Uh, Repl It is repl.it, the mm-hmm. website. We'll include both in the show notes uh, for people who want to try it out. So Maggie, do you mind telling us a little bit about the instructors at Hackbright? Not at all. Um, so instructors at Hackbright come from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, I'll talk about one of our current instructors. Um, I won't name her by name, just in case she doesn't want to be sure. <laughs> shared with the entire uh, audience. But um, yeah, she comes from a background, a really kind of um, multidisciplinary background. So she's been a software engineer on various um, various sizes of teams, which I think is a great um, thing for the classroom to for the students in our program to experience like someone with industry experience who can speak to the trials and tribulations of a software engineer um, but she also has taught um, at, a, at a museum before um, science and math um, and so that's one example of sort of a previous career trajectory for someone who comes in and wants to teach at Hackbright uh, is someone who has a passion for teaching um, who has a passion for or who is motivated by like having a lot of interaction and um, tangible purpose throughout the day? I think it it's um, you know it's easy to feel like you're making a difference um, in you know whatever um, in in making a difference in your job, but also you know our mission is to change the ratio in technology. So it's really awesome to have like a tangible thing that you're you're actually teaching a woman how to become a software engineer every day of your life. Um, and seeing them go and get jobs afterwards, it's very motivating. Um, so I'm kind of speaking to my own feelings about it as well, because I was an instructor for <laughs> previously. Um, how, how did you yourself find your way to Hackbright and software engineer? Yeah, totally. So I um, loved computers growing up. Uh, I de- never really considered becoming a software engineer, which is 
something that I hear a lot in my daily work at Hack, sure. right? Is, you know, a lot of women who just didn't even consider it as an option um, growing up, even though they loved tech and, and software. Um, and then I ended up majoring in gender and women's studies at UC Berkeley. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I became completely obsessed with the notion of just being a feminist academic for my entire life. Um, but by the end, I was kind of wanting a, a change. And so, you know, being in the Bay Area, you're surrounded by tech people, I could tell that I could use some just time to just stare at a computer for a little while. And so some, one of my friends in tech recommended to learn uh, Python on, on, I think, edX. Um, and so I started learning Python. I ended up going to a hackerspace in the city called Noisebridge to learn like in a more classroom setting. And that was really helpful. Um, and then I heard about Hackbright. I actually went to Hackbright. Um, and then I ended up working for them as an internal tools um, engineer for a couple of years um, when we were really small. Uh, I think I loved that because it was like a tiny company and I was really young and I felt, you know, like I was having I, I was having a lot of impact and um, getting to do a lot of new things that I never, ever, ever imagined that I would be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just, yeah, I kept saying, um, and obviously I'm, I'm very motivated to work um, helping women change their lives. I really like, you know, I, I love to see at graduation um, the looks on the faces of women like that I can tell they're nervous to start interviewing. I can tell they're kind of not even believing what they themselves have just done, but I know because I've seen it happen again and again that they're gonna go off and get employed and be happy and I'll see them three months later and they'll be like, what, heck right? I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> right? And then they'll just have like a completely new, different take on life, so I love that. A lot of folks who are interested in a career change of the kind that Hackbright offers students um, they might be curious about job titles that are, you know, they're eligible for after the program. Mm-hmm. And I guess that not every single graduate gets a entry level software engineering quote unquote role as opposed to maybe a data scientist role mm-hmm. or a data analyst type of role where you're more, working more with SQL, like you mentioned, being part of the curriculum. Are there... Uh, are there routes that uh, alumni of or alumni alum? <laughs> I know there's, <laughs> there's a gender specific <laughs> alumna. Yeah, alumna. Uh, is there is there uh, flexibility around the jobs that people end up getting out of Hackbright? I would say somewhat. Um, as far as like job titles that we see, um, it's a lot of software engineer. Um, we also have seen software engineer in test. A role that's becoming more popular nowadays is uh, customer success engineer or solution engineer, mm-hmm. which I think is a fascinating first role for, for a software engineer. I think it's so great to expose them to something that's like really um, solutions oriented, where they're kind of like on the outer layer of that like debugging process and they get to kind of learn about the code base like really um, naturally. Um, so I, the, that's becoming more popular um, recently. Um, but something that I love, uh, and I don't see as much data analysts. Um, I actually see people coming in from data analyst careers coming to become software engineers more than I see them going to data analyst. Um, we really recommend that people get their first engineers as software engineer as well, as, even if they want to go into data science, for example, um, just because they still have a lot of learning to do when they graduate. 
it's not that like we've given them all the knowledge they need and suddenly they can just go do anything they want in tech. Um, a lot of those like neural pathways are just like, they're just very new and fresh and they need to be <laughs> kind of walked upon a little more. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think it's great when, you know, at le- they give at least one year to that like first role. Um, it's something that on the company side that I've been seeing more and more and that I implore any of your listeners, if they have any ability to impact this at their own companies, um, is the the notion of a software engineer apprentice, um, which is really just a term that I think it, it little more loosely accommodates like folks who are coming out of coding boot camps who are not necessarily recent college grads, but um, they want entry level roles that maybe are you know very um, like low low uh, what's the term uh, low risk for both the engineer and the company like maybe it's a con- a three month apprenticeship contract to hire. Um, maybe you'll you'll get an offer at the end or maybe it's just you know the end of your apprenticeship and then you can go off and and start your second job search Um, but I think it's a great thing that companies are doing now because it's it's hugely impactful for for coding boot camp grads because a lot of times they they can't get in that like university kind of route where there's a university recruiter who goes to college career fairs and then if if you can't get in there sometimes if you have a really traditional recruiting system then you just are applying against folks who already have, you know, technical work experience or um, software engineering internships and have gone, you know, through that mm-hmm. traditional way. So I think apprenticeships are awesome, and I hope that I hope to see more and more. I know um, Dropbox has one, PagerDuty has an awesome one, Lyft has an awesome one, um, and there um, uh, LinkedIn has one. Um, so I just I hope we see more and more of that because I think it's awesome both for the company to get, you know interesting, fresh, highly motivated, excited people um, in the door. And then, you know, for students, obviously, or for graduates, I should say. Um, yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, because I think you're a great guest to ask this question of. But when it comes to the future of education for mm. the software engineering profession and career path, there are a lot of different variations when it comes to financing the costs of the tuition. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, uh, there's the tuition fee that students pay. It can be financed by the student. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's collateralized by their future income. Uh, there, we're seeing new coding boot camps. Maybe this model has been around a while that uh, costs nothing up front, or maybe even pay a stipend and then take a percentage of your paycheck, assuming you get a job in software engineering mm-hmm. uh, for some years following. Uh, the apprenticeship model you just described is more of the pay employer directly paying somebody uh, maybe a fair market or below market rate until their productivity reaches a certain point, mm-hmm. at which point they become at market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess by definition it's market. But what do you what do you think might be the future of the financing problem in education for software engineers at least? Yeah, I think the the income share agreement model is intriguing, um, and it's definitely it's an it's an exciting development for people who who are definitely ready to change their lives and to really commit. Um, I do think it's a lot of pressure, um, both just mental and emotional pressure to like get the job. Like, there's already so much pressure on on folks to to actually like 
make use of their their training that they've invested not just money in but time and energy they oftentimes are quitting their jobs like upsetting their entire personal lives like basically disappearing from their personal lives for three months um hopefully not when they attend hack right but more or less you know, it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah um and i think it's yeah it complicates it to add that layer of pressure and sometimes i i hear stories and it it just it sounds um yeah, stressful, I guess, um, for folks who are not, you know, you, you have the success stories, of course, and that's to be expected and exciting. Um, but then you also have what you don't hear about as much, which is like the folks who really struggle or um, something that I've been thinking about lately is like there, there's a lot of different policies that go into that income share agreement model. And I, my, my question is um, if you have like a certain uh, income rate that hits that bar to where you have to go into repayment for your tuition. What if it's on the lower end or what if the bar is pretty low and your payment is really high? Um, and you know, not everyone plans on that. Like folks often plan on like making, you know, market rate salaries for a software engineer and they think, Oh yeah, I'll definitely, that'll be easy to make that payment. And what if it's not, you know? Um, and so I, you know, I just think I, I'm interested to see where it goes as well. Um, I think options is great. Um, I'm, I'm not going to launch into Hackbrite's financial options, but I think it's different for everyone. And it would be great if we if we were as an industry, um, both across you know uh, traditional public education or you know private institutions like or you know short term programs like there's options for every kind of person who's on any kind of path. Uh, because I think what's most important is that we are able to allow people to become software engineers who want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to kind of close that door is really tough. And it, I think it's hard to deny the notion that people do, do major in computer science and they drop out for reasons that are highly related to feeling like they belong, to feeling like they... Um, are going to be successful Um, and what I've seen a lot and I've heard the story it's more of an anecdotal thing is just you know folks who thought who were kind of somewhat drawn to to the computer science like gave it up early on because they were like oh it's too hard like I'm not meant to do it you know I sometimes I don't look like everyone who's around me Um, and I think that that is something that needs to change Um, and it doesn't happen just by being like oh we're going to change that like it happens by you know institutions like coding boot camps like changing the rules a little bit um so it's exciting i'm i'm excited to see what happens i i come from a family of educators so i'm all about you know traditional educational institutions like being successful especially public education my mom was a public educator is you know still kind of she retired recently but you know for 20 years so i'm i'm a big believer in that and i think that it's a problem that can be solved um but yeah. I've I've never myself read an income sharing agreement contract that, you know, that the, that the newer uh, maybe boot camps that are exclusively income sharing agreement type compensation have, but you mentioned the word options and my eyes lit up because I realized that there are alternative ways to compensate people besides cash, salary or wages, uh, all being the same thing and I do wonder if you accept an offer to a job and it's at a startup where they are offering equity, mm-hmm. whether you can negotiate your salary so low that 
you can dodge the income sharing agreement. I'm guessing not, but that's an interesting prospect that people might be able to get a free, tu free tuition education and then not have to pay it off. I, there's got to be Game loopholes somewhere. Oh, yeah. You set it up, but there, people will find a way, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, Maggie, this has been awesome to have you on as a guest. Thanks I, for having me. Absolutely. I highly recommend our audience check out Hackbrite. We'll include links in the show notes. Awesome. Uh, if you guys want to get a hold of Maggie, feel free to find her on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. Thanks for coming on, Maggie. Thank you. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.